Well, we're going to look together at really the second half of chapter 14, starting at verse 13 to the end of the chapter. But, uh, but I'd like to start reading kind of toward the end of chapter 13 so we can see the whole of this uh, event. So we'll start reading at verse 17 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch. The Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. We lose our... Oh, we did. Well, let's try that. Congregation of God beloved in Christ. This passage we've just read is rather unique. It is, on the one hand, one of the most glorious accounts of the Old Testament. And at the same time, one of the most hotly debated and questioned passages of Scripture. To the casual reader, unfamiliar with the ways of our wise God, this account of the Red Sea crossing is curious to say the least. On the one hand, it seems like God is treating His people with kid gloves. We saw in the, in the account preceding our text proper how God could have led them out of the land of Egypt and up along the shore of the Mediterranean into the land of the Philistines. That was really close. That would have been the fastest way to get into Canaan. But He didn't because He said He didn't want to frighten them. He didn't want to discourage them by leading them straight into war, which would have happened if they had gone to the Philistines. But on the other hand, he causes them to wander at the edge of Egypt 
practically dangling them like bait in front of the Egyptians, causing the Egyptians to come after them. And we, we see that and we think, what in the world is he going on? Is going on? But you see, God has a plan here. He wants to leave no doubt, on the one hand, in the eyes of the Egyptians, that this was the doing of a God who is infinitely greater than any of their gods. That they cannot and they will not reclaim the people of Israel for their slave, their slave labor because he is fighting on their behalf. And at the same time, he wants to leave no doubt in the eyes of the Israelites that he's got them. That he's the one who delivered and that he is the one who will continue to protect and to preserve them and therefore they can and they must trust him. That's what he's doing here. But before we... We look into the details of that. We need, very briefly, to address some doubts that modern scholars have foisted upon this account. For at least a century, folks have questioned the claim that they went through the Red Sea. Scholars point out that the name of the body of water, as described in Exodus 13, is Yam Suf, which literally means Sea of Reeds. And they point that out because they want to make room for doubt that the people actually went through the sea. They would rather point them north to the Bitter Lakes region where the the lakes are much shallower or even better closer to the Mediterranean Sea where there's a lot of marshland. They want to make out as though it was really not very deep water that they passed through and that, you know, this was really just a natural occurrence that, you know, happily occurred at the right time a regular event of tides and wind that allowed the water to become shallow enough for the people to pass through. However, that's not what the text says on, the first, on, on one hand, because it says they passed through not in shallow water or swamp land, but through dry ground. And secondly, we find in non-biblical accounts that the term Yam Suf was used to refer to the Red Sea to the sea proper. But beyond all of that, Pharaoh and his army were not conquered by drowning in a puddle or a swamp. So we need to be very clear, and we'll, I, I point that out simply because increasingly we find this nonsense in study Bibles. Increasingly we hear this nonsense, even on social media, these uh, evangelists who proclaim their their ideas on TikTok and other social media. And it plants seeds of doubt. And we need to remember that God's Word is beyond doubt, beyond question. It's entirely true and trustworthy. What we read in this account is entirely factual. God led His people to wander in the wilderness at the edge of Egypt, likely in the southeastern corner. He led them to camp in a place that seemed inescapable, right on the shore of the sea. And then he led them through that sea on dry ground, a miracle absolutely inconceivable to the mind of men. And God did it all for the sake of his glory and for the sake of the well-being of his people. By the hand of Moses in this account, the true God displays powerfully his deliverance 
as he has vowed. That's our theme. The true God displays his deliverance that he has vowed. And the first aspect of that that we see is how he repeats his promise to save his people, which is really important when the enemy starts breathing down their neck. Notice what's happening at the start of our text. Since departing from their homes... Israel has been following a gigantic pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. God has been leading them. Again, not taking them on the most direct course to Canaan, but really causing them to wander about at the edge of Egypt. Because he knew Pharaoh. He knew Pharaoh's heart. Already Pharaoh was stung by the scale of the loss that Egypt had endured. Not only the loss of their firstborn, but the loss of their crops, of their livestock, of their well-being, of their prosperity. And now, now they, they reckon with the idea that they've let their slave labor force depart, which is a massive source of, well, a massive source of wealth, but also a massive resource that would have been helpful for rebuilding their country. And at the same time, he has to see this as a security risk because although they didn't have social media and they didn't have the internet, it was sure that news of what had happened would spread to the surrounding nations. They would see Egypt in a weakened state. They would see that even Egypt's slaves had somehow managed to overpower them and escape. And they would be vulnerable. So Pharaoh was sure to have remorse over what had happened. So God gives him opportunity. And sure enough, pretty soon Pharaoh and a large army gather and begin following after Israel. Verses 6 through 9 emphasize the significance of this force. Pharaoh is taking no chances that they would be unable to conquer and reclaim the Israelites. Very likely, he was, he was trying that whole shock and awe approach, right? When they see the horizon absolutely filled with Egyptian armament, they're going to just turn around and start walking back. And had they been left to themselves, that's exactly what Israel would have done. Verse 10 says, They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They knew with their flocks and their children... They had no hope of escaping. And surely they couldn't defeat such military might. They were toast. They even went so far as to rebuke Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done? That boldness with which they speak to God's servant is born of fear. They're terrified. They're they're convinced they're going to die out here in the wilderness. But in answer... Moses, speaking on behalf of God, repeats God's promise to save the people. Notice the threefold command we find in verse 13. First, he says, fear not. Young people, fear is always the first response to which we are tempted when we are confronted with the consequence of standing with God. You tell your boss, no, I simply cannot work on the Lord's day. And he says, well, you know, there's a lot of people applying for your job. And you fear. You get caught in sin. 
And you know that God wants you to confess that sin, but you also know there's going to be a serious consequence if you do, and you could probably get away with the lie, and so you fear. You fear man. But Moses says, don't fear. The one whom you serve is infinitely greater than the one who is coming against you. Do not fear, but instead stand firm. Stand there and trust God. Stand there and believe His promise. Stand firm. Don't cower before the enemy, which would be a confession that God is not great enough. But stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you. In Hebrew, that is a command. See, watch, look. Because God is going to do something amazing and He doesn't want you to miss it. And then he assures the congregation, the end of verse 13, For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. How glorious. God himself is going to fight on their behalf. Their enemy will be defeated once and for always. All Israel has to do, stand firm and watch. Folks, those words are intended for us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking to the church, right? And talking to the church, he reminds them that we are the new Israel, that the ones who stood at the shore of the sea, they were our forefathers. And then he tells them concerning our forefathers, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. God wanted us to take note of what happened because it was for our teaching, for our lesson. Because we too encounter God's enemies in this world and they are terrifying at times. They hate our God, and therefore they hate us, and therefore they come at us with sabers rattling and chariots running hard. The temptation we face is the temptation they faced, and that is to fear not God, but man. But to us, God says, stand firm. And confident in God, watch and see how He will defeat your enemies. Having thus commanded Israel, Moses is given a command, which we find in verses 15 to 18. A couple things to note in that. First, Moses is to tell Israel to move forward immediately. That's interesting. Don't wait and see what God does and, and see if you don't want to move forward then. No, no, no. Before you even see it happen... Before you even recognize the fullness of what God's going to do, start moving. Break camp. Trust that He's going to do what you need Him to do. The way in which God is leading here has to seem foolish to the eyes of man. Here we have this immense crowd, at least 1.5 million people. There is an army bearing down on them, and God wants them to get up and to begin walking toward the sea. That doesn't seem to make any sense. If we're following the wisdom of men, if we're second-guessing God, we're not going to move. 
Or maybe we're going to move laterally. We're going to go along the sea. But to turn around and start, no, that's, that doesn't make sense. But again, this is written for us. This is real. This is historical fact. Pharaoh's army is representative. It's, it's historical, but it's also representative of our greater enemy, Satan, and those who stand with him. The Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, is representative of our baptism and all that it displays to us. Our identity in Christ, the promises of God, that He will be our God, that He will care for us, that He will direct us. And we are called to heed the example set by Israel, obeying God even before we see how He's going to deliver, turning and walking straight toward, not the enemy and not some distant future, but straight toward His promise, His deliverance, even though it looks like there's no escape there. In other words, we're called to walk forward by faith, exactly in the direction God God points us, remembering the promise He has repeated to save us. And then He reveals His provision to deliver the elect. That's the second thing we see. But first he protects them while that deliverance is coming. Notice in verses 19 and 20, he takes that pillar of fire and of cloud and he moves it behind them. It's been ahead of them. They're following it. Suddenly he uses it to separate them from the Egyptians. To the enemies of God, it's a pillar of cloud, of darkness, blocking off God's people from them. But to God's people in the night... It's a pillar of fire lighting up what God is about to do, demonstrating to them the power of our God. Again, He's showing us. We too often must wait to find out how He's going to work this situation out, how He's going to deliver us. But in the meantime, He gives us light. He gives us space. How does He do that? He gives us His Word by which He reminds us how He has delivered His people time and time and time again. He gives us His people who weep with us, who pray with us, who stand beside us, who testify to us how they have been delivered time and time and time again. That's the light of God's presence encouraging us, strengthening us. And meanwhile, He assures us that enemy... That enemy is restrained by his hand. They cannot do anything that he does not permit. Meanwhile, God provides deliverance. Verse 21 says he sends a strong east wind. Now that's kind of a problem if we're looking for a naturalistic solution. Because an east wind, remember the Red Sea at this point is north-south. An east wind, well I guess you know, for you guys it'll look like that. Uh, it's not going to drive the water back, is it? What it is going to do is force the people to wait and watch as their deliverance slowly draws near. And that's going to be a little nerve-wracking because they can hear all the Egyptians behind them. They can hear all their battle equipment rattling about. They can hear their voices. They can hear their conversations. But they're watching as slowly their deliverance draws near. finally they see it. The water 
begins to separate. A path begins to materialize. The waters stand up as walls. That's an architectural term in the Hebrew. Usually used to refer to city walls. Something strong and impregnable which provides protection. And that's exactly what it was. That sea was a sea, as we'll notice in a few minutes, of judgment. But God raises up walls on either side to protect them from that judgment and they will pass right through the midst of it. Again, this is for our instruction because we walk through the midst of judgment in this world. We live in a world that is absolutely filled with reminders and foreshadowings of God's judgment. Is that not what we see when we see the the devastation wrought by a tornado that absolutely and utterly destroys massive trees and wipes out homes as though they were never there? That's a foreshadowing, not to say that, that that family is necessarily being judged, but it is a reminder of the power of God by which He will judge. Likewise, hurricanes and wildfires and massive storms, the lightning of which absolutely destroys whatever it strikes. All of that is a reminder of the judgment that soon will fall on all those who hate the Lord. And yet for us the judgment is held back. We don't yet see the fullness of God's judgment because He has delayed it. Why? That we might escape. That we might have time to turn to the Lord and to be prepared for eternity. Until then, He allows us to see glimpses of it, just as Israel saw that glimpse as it passed through the sea. But He holds it back that we might escape walking in confident faith toward the escape that God has provided. Egypt, however, follows Israel into the sea, right into the midst of that judgment hall. Now, we're not told exactly what happened, whether the the pillar of fire and cloud moved to follow the Israelites. That's what seems likely. Or maybe he moved it around again in front. But one way or another... Egypt finds its way clear to begin following Israel into the sea. And then God unleashes his power to judge the enemy. That's the last thing, or the, the third thing we see here. They follow them in. They pass through. Surely we can. It's dry ground. I know there's water on every side, but they went through. Surely we can. But then God begins fighting for his people. Remember, they're not passing through shallow water or a swamp. Israel is walking on dry ground, and yet suddenly the chariot wheels start to have trouble. The ESV implies that, they were, that the wheels began clogging with mud. Maybe. The New King James translates it that the wheels were falling off. Maybe. Whatever it was, the Hebrew indicates that The wheels began having trouble. God troubled their wheels. And they started to have doubts. Because as their progress slowed, as the way became clogged, they recognized this is not natural. God himself, who erected these walls of water, walls of judgment on each side, is fighting for them. And maybe we're not in a good place here. The Lord fights for Israel against the Egyptians. That's what the soldiers themselves began saying. 
as they began turning around to flee. Now again, we see in this a shadow of how God fights for his people even today. In every age, the enemies of God pursue God's people relentlessly. If you have any doubt of that, go online and subscribe to World Magazine or Voice of the Martyrs Magazine. Persecution against the church today is as great as it has ever been and possibly greater. India has become an absolute hotbed of murder against Christians. The Middle East is absolutely filled with tyrants who seek any excuse to destroy the people of God, preferably in the most open and overt ways possible. And it's not just physical attacks that afflict us. Satan is just as happy to convert as to kill. And so in our culture, the war is one of temptation. Ad campaigns, websites, movies, they're filled with images that seek to entice us into sin. The best of the schools in this land, at least the best rated, are filled with lies that contradict the truth of God's word. Our government seeks to legitimize coveting and stealing through socialism. Our society utterly scorns those who refuse to approve of overt sin like homosexuality and transgenderism. The attacks by the enemies of God are absolutely incessant. They pursue us even when we decline their temptations with politeness. They seek to convert us as their own consciences afflict them. They seek our destruction because we stand as testimony against them. Some even hide their wolvish fur beneath wool, infiltrating the church. But God fights for us. He sends difficulties that hamper our enemies. Internal bickering, distracting some of them. Unexplainable roadblocks, slowing their efforts to tempt us. He sends confusion into their hearts. Their conscience is giving them, them no rest. Their thinking having, being filled with internal contradictions. God slows our enemies in countless ways that we might see his deliverance. But now Israel's enemies... As they fully enter the sea, God tells Moses, turn around, spread your hand over the sea and cause it to return to its place. And Moses does. And immediately, the waters begin to close in on the Egyptians. The walls collapsing, the waters returning, the soldiers scattering for fear of their lives. Verse 27 says, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Like a child throws a handful of rocks into a lake. So complete was their destruction that the text says, not a man remained of those who entered into the sea. And notice, God did it all, verse 27, when the morning appeared. When what they believed was their most powerful God, Ra, the sun god, made his appearance over them at the time when they felt most secure, strongest, most unconquerable. At that very moment, God utterly annihilated them, demonstrating that not the most powerful of their false gods could deliver from his hand. Beloved, here is a glorious promise for us. Today, we are 
in a sense, in the midst of the sea or at the edge of the wilderness. We're not yet in the promised land. For all the blessings of our country, and there are plenty of them, this isn't the new heavens and the new earth. We're still surrounded by warfare. Our enemies are coming up behind us. But very, very soon, destruction will close over them. And not one will escape. So don't fear them. Pity them. Don't stand in awe of them. Stand in awe of the one who has preserved us from them and who very soon will bring an utter and complete end to them such that the creation will no longer know even one who denies him. On that day, for that reason and others, great, immense shall be our joy. For like Israel of old, we'll recognize that we have passed through the waters. We have endured the judgment in Christ. And our enemies are no more. Verse 29. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So shall we pass through that last sea of the day of judgment. We shall stand with all the multitude of all who have ever lived in the presence of God before His judgment throne, hearing the judgment that He meets out on those multitudes who have rejected Him, who have turned aside from Him. But we shall escape because Christ already endured our judgment for us. We shall walk through on dry ground because Christ was our wall. And on that day, God will unfold His purpose to glorify Himself. Verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Just as God promised, so He accomplished everything He said. Everything He assured them He would do. This is what Israel saw. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Now in the Hebrew, there's a contrast there between two hands. They were delivered by the hand of Yahweh, their God, from the hand of the Egyptians that sought to destroy them. The hand of man sought to destroy, the hand of God powerfully delivered. It was God alone who brought them the deliverance they needed. Not their work, not their wisdom, not their good deeds revisited upon them in some sort of karma. No. The gracious, omnipotent hand of God delivered them from the hand of the enemy. And likewise shall we be delivered. Today the hand of the ungodly, accompanied by the hand of Satan and the hand of death, seek to fill us with terror. And we're not unscathed. Right? Our lives get beaten and bruised quite a bit by the sins that we have committed in answer to their temptation, by the hurt that we foist upon one another and that others have foisted upon us. 
But yet we walk in the midst of the sea on dry ground. Yet the Lord preserves and protects us. And on that great day of judgment, we will see that in all of its fullness. We'll recognize how God has brought us entirely through the sea. How He has brought us up onto the dry land of the wilderness. No, the dry land of Canaan. And all our enemies have perished behind us. And then our response will be, must be, the response of Israel. The people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. They feared God, recognizing that He is the sovereign one, that He is the good one, that He is the faithful one who has brought them out into the fullness of His deliverance. And therefore they believe, they trust that God who has delivered will continue to deliver and provide and preserve eternally. That is how we shall respond and therefore, beloved, that's how we must respond even today. Young people, when you, when you are confronted by those temptations, by those trials, by those threats, by those things that make others shake with fear, when they assure you that they will ruin your name, that they will ruin your friends, that they will take away your job, just remember you serve the one who is greater. They can't even touch a hair on your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. And He will cause absolutely everything that they are permitted to do to work together for the good of your salvation. So fear not, men. Stand before God. Watch to see the deliverance. And as you see the deliverance, for you will see, not the fullness yet, but you will see His deliverance. Fear the Lord. Give Him the glory that He deserves as you go through life trusting in Him. And you will have fulfilled your highest purpose. Honoring, glorifying, and serving the Lord our God. What did we hear in our assurance of pardon? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Amen. Beloved, let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. For we live in a world that is filled with that which would make us shudder and fear. But you are greater. There is no enemy. There is no adversary, there is no government, there is no power on earth or in the spiritual realm that is greater than you or that can thwart your purposes. Cause us to remember that, Lord. Give us the strength that we might fear not men or even Satan himself, but that we might fear you and trust you and believe you and stand firm, looking confidently for the salvation and the deliverance that you will provide. And may you use us to bring glory and honor to your name as we confess that our hope is entirely in Christ your Son and that our strength comes from your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.